results. Uh, you can certainly argue absolutely that there is a certain level of insanity in that kind of action, right? You do the same thing over and over again, and you think something else is going to result from that. Um, maybe you ought to examine what's between the ears a little bit there. Like, what, what are you doing? What's happening here? Because you think that if you're not getting the results that you want to see, that maybe you would try something different. In fact, there's uh, another a saying that, um, that exists is that your current system is perfectly designed to produce the results that you are currently seeing. Just kind of an interesting thing. So if you want different results, you have to change the input. You got input, output, you got to change the input. You know, I remember doing a, a team building exercise as I was coming into college. It's designed, okay, you got all these fresh college students, they're coming in and they don't know each other, they're just trying to get to know each other. A team building exercise, that's what everybody wants to do, right? That's Yay for that. Well, there's a certain exercise that we were doing. We had to solve a problem, figure out the solution. And the team was continually trying the same thing over and over and over again and not getting the results we were wanting. We were trying to figure out this puzzle, trying to figure out what the deal was. And there was one person that was suggesting different things like, hey, you know, maybe we ought to try this other thing instead. But it was Shot down. No, 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 that, that, that can't be it because X, Y, Z. We got to keep trying this thing here. And they're so focused on this thing. And it wasn't until the facilitator stepped in and said, Hey, you guys, maybe you actually ought to try that idea that that other person's bringing to the table. Maybe you ought to look into that. That they actually, okay, fine. We'll, we'll set aside these, the same thing that we've been doing over and over again. And we'll try this other idea. And lo and behold, it actually worked. <laughs> it was the solution it brought about the results that they desired. But they were so sure that they were doing it right, that they didn't need these other ideas, and yet they weren't getting what they wanted to see. It took someone from the outside to nudge them, to listen to the ideas of someone who was within their midst, to try something that was different. It's one thing to try the same thing over and over again in a team-building exercise, and it's another thing altogether when a society as a whole does it, right? We can begin to see the fruits of things. You know, it's a common joke among conservatives that whenever we talk about, oh yeah, every, wherever socialism has been tried, it's failed. And if, oh, if we're trying socialism again, the thing is, well, we just didn't do it right last time. And so it's, it's the common joke that gets thrown around. Hey, maybe if we just do it the right way, it'll work this time. Trying the same thing over and over again and getting different results. Well, they're not getting different results. They're getting the same results. And we see this in society as well, in a society that rejects God. Hey, maybe if we reject God, but let's, let's, maybe we'll change exactly the expression of that rejection. Maybe if we reject God in this other way, maybe things will work out better. But the result is always the same. Societies that abandon God in His ways always crumble. Societies that abandon God in His ways always crumble. Some crumble faster than others, but they always crumble. And such is the danger and the pattern that we see unfolding within the book of Judges as we move through this book. The people will continually seem to fail to learn their lesson. 
God is gracious unto them. God is long-suffering with them. He, he brings judgment into their lives in order to teach them and direct them back unto himself. And yet they go through these cycles that we have been seeing. We've seen a couple of these cycles already. We saw the cycle with Othniel. We saw the cycle with Ehud. And yet the people continually go back to their sin. From security to sin to suffering to supplication to salvation to security once again and then back around to sin. And the cycle goes on as the people continue to devolve further and further down. It's not just a circular cycle, it is a devolving cycle that goes steadily downwards in their decline. Well, again, we have seen the first few cycles these last two weeks. This week we will examine what it could be called the Barak cycle. Look with me in Judges chapter 4 if you've not turned there already. This is where we will be spending our time today. Judges chapter 4, where we find really the the depressing beginning to our account. Judges chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heresheth Hagoyim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years." Right off the bat, the author swings us right back around. We saw the salvation of, of, of Ehud and, and Shamgar. We saw these, these great mighty works that God had done in the previous chapter. And then right back around, we're smacked right in the face. Ah, here we go again. The people did what is evil again. They went back to it again. The author already, we're, we're only in the chapter 4 here. We're not terribly far into the book. And the author already seems incredulous at these people and wanting us to be shocked at what is happening again. Like, we've gone through this already. Come on, guys. People again did what was evil in the sight of God. And so God sells them. He gives them over. He delivers them into the hand of Jabin. Jabin's mentioned here. He's mentioned a couple times throughout this account, but he doesn't play a major role. Instead, we have his general that is the main player at work here. The commander of his army, Sisera, the five-star general, head honcho, superstar commander. He's got 900 chariots of iron at his disposal. And at that time, 900 chariots of iron, that's like riding the battle with tanks going up in our, against an army of guys on horseback. It is just, there is no contest here. This is going to be an absolute bloodbath for the team opposing the chariots of iron. Bronze Age weapons are of little use against such advancements. Except, of course, unless you've got God on your side. At least that's how it ought to be, right? I mean, We know that God's people, they're not confined to whatever technological advances they have or have not attained to against the forces of whatever's in the world. 
Right, we talked about this as we were coming through the introduction in chapter 1, where what have we seen God do against incalculable technological odds? Right? Did, did the people of Israel come before Jericho with great technological advancements? They walked around a city. They just did a march. And what, the, what happened? The walls came a-tumbling down. Right? That's, our, that's the song. That's, that's what happened. No, it does not take great technological advancements for the Lord to be victorious. Chariots of iron mean nothing when God is on your side. If God is for us, who can be against us? The testimony of Romans chapter 8. But what if it is God who is against you? How long can you expect to survive when the hand of the Almighty God is against you for harm? Notice that it is the Lord who has sold them into the hand of Jabin. This isn't something that has just happened randomly. This isn't just something that just, well, you know, whatever will happen will happen. No, this was a divine act. God has delivered them. God has sold them into the hand of Jabin. It's because of their wickedness, God brings this punishment that He promised would come. Again, this is, by, by the end of the book of Judges, probably, I'm probably going to sound like a broken record up here a little bit. Just the, the same themes that continually present themselves, that's part of the point of the book of Judges. The theme that comes back around, these cycles that repeat themselves. So it may sound like I'm repeating myself week after week. Well, that's that's what the author of Judges is trying to draw us unto, these same themes that, that grow and highlight and get greater and larger as we continue to progress through the book. But, but God brings the judgment that He promised would come. And so the people are oppressed for 20 years, and it says that they cry out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord for help. And how does the Lord answer their plea? Let's read on verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinonoam, from Kadesh Nephtali, and said to him, "'Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you?' Go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Deborah, 
a prophetess. She was judging Israel at the time. And that, that all by itself is, is a bit of an interesting statement. Notice, notice it says that she judges Israel. Okay, so she sat, she, she sat under the tree and people came to her for judgment, right? That's, that's what the text says. They came to her from judgment and she would get them. So apparently there were cases that were happening. There were disagreements. There was litigation or adjudication that was required. And they would come to her and she would give forth her wisdom. She would give forth her judgment upon the case, and the people would come to her. We have to pause for a moment and ask, is there anything wrong with this picture? What did the law say for how cases were to be adjudicated? The law made provisions for how the people could have their cases judged, and it was through the priesthood people aren't going to the priest. They're going to Deborah. How were the Israelites supposed to hear from God? Again, it should be through the priesthood. But for whatever reason, that's not happening. We don't have the details of why that's not happening within our text. In fact, the text doesn't actually render a judgment upon Deborah as a prophetess. It actually paints her in, in, in a very positive light. Deborah was a prophetess. She was a mouthpiece for God. She spoke for God, and the people came to her. But the fact that they're coming to her expresses something about the condition of the nation it could speak to the reality that the people have lost confidence in the priesthood or perhaps they're disregarding God's provision and seeking out judgments through other means. But in either case, this is a little signal, this is a little hint, a little moment that there's, that there's something not right here. Right? There's something rotten in the state of Denmark, right? There's, it's not quite right. How should we think about Deborah? Deborah, she's a prophetess, right? And this, you know, here we are in a you know, 21st century, and we start thinking about things of, of all the culture might say about, about women in leadership and, and leadership within the church, etc. And here we are, we are a, a complementarian church. We affirm a complementarian idea. Don't we believe that men are supposed to be leaders in the home and in the church, etc.? Isn't that what we believe? The answer is Yes, that is what we believe. We can rightly say that the rest of the Bible points to God's design for the roles of men and women, that men are supposed to be the leaders in the church and in their homes. Women are designed to be responsive to that leadership. It's an order that God has built in the very fabric of how He made us at the very beginning. It's how God created things to be. And if that's the case, how do we understand what's going on here? How do we think about this? Why is Deborah functioning in a role that, that we would expect normally to see a man functioning in that role? A role that seems like it ought to have been filled by a man. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you what is probably going to be an unsatisfactory answer this morning. I don't know. <laughs> uh, the reality is, is the text does not really seem to care too much about the answer to that question. Or later on, the text is going gonna, is gonna to care a lot about the role of a woman, but it's not Deborah. 
the, the role of, of Deborah is not something that is highlighted much by the text. The, the text presents Deborah as the prophetess. This is who she was. This was how she was functioning. And that's just a reality. But the issue of what was right and proper in that moment, I'm just going to have to set that aside because our text doesn't take care to explain that detail to us. And so I don't want to get distracted by the issues of, that, we, that we typically want to go to. We want to think about, oh, what does this mean about the role of women in ministry? The text isn't trying to tell us that. And so that's an important discussion. I'll save that sermon. I'm here. I'll preach that on another day. But for today, what is the text trying to get us to see? What is the point here? We want our focus to be on what the text is focused on. And what is the text focused on? Well, what does Deborah say? What is, what is the word of the Lord? She says, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? She gives this charge to Barak. God has given you a command. And what is it? You're to go. You're to gather your men, 10,000 men. And God says, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you. And I will give him into your hand. This is what God will do. This is what God says He will do. God delivered Israel into Jabin's hand, and now God is going to deliver Sisera and Jabin into the hand of Barak. Except one problem. Barak seems to have a little bit of a faith problem. Barak lacks faith. He says he will only go out if Deborah goes with him. Why? <laughs> what's, the, what's the deal, Barak? You got, you're getting cold feet here. What, what's your issue? Well, as he sees it, he likely sees Deborah is the, she is the prophetess. She is the one who speaks for God. So if, if Deborah goes with me, that ensures that God is with me. Because, hey, I've got his prophet, his prophetess. She's here. Therefore, I can be sure that God is with me. But hasn't God already spoken? Hasn't God already commanded, hey, do this and this is what I will do? And should not that have been enough for Barak? It should have been. But Barak wants her long almost, as this text reads, it almost seems like he views her almost like a the lucky charm. It's like, I, I can't go to the game without my lucky baseball cap. You know, I got to wear my lucky socks or, or whatever it is. And he demands that she go with him. And so Deborah says, fine, okay, that's, that's all well and good. I'll go. But know this, the road that you're walking on, this path that you've chosen, it will not lead to your glory. Typically, when these battles were fought, when you go out into to war and you would have victory, of course, the commander of that army, he is the celebrated one. He is the one. In fact, there's, there's all kinds of stories about this throughout the rest of the Old Testament where we see the celebration of the commander of the army. Right in, in, in 1 and 2 Samuel, we see David go forth, and David is hailed as this great warrior. And he's got his mighty men, David's 30 mighty men, these great warriors, and they are hailed for their, their battle prowess. Deborah says, you're not going to get that, Barak, because of your lack of faith in this moment. That glory will not go to you. In fact, she says that that 
glory is going to go into the hand of a woman. It says the Lord will sell Sisera. Now it's interesting. The parallels are interesting. The Lord sold Israel into the hand of Jabin. Well, now God is going to sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. That woman isn't Deborah. In fact, if you're just reading the text and if you don't know what's coming, you might expect, oh, that's probably going to be Deborah. She's going to go with him into, into the battle. Well, hey, Deborah's the one who's going to get the glory here, but that is not for her. Deborah's not referring to herself. In fact, the text, if we examine the text closely, it indicates that though she went with Barak to Kadesh, it looks like she did not actually go into battle herself. She was a prophetess. She was not a warrior. So the glory of victory will go to another. Let's read on and see how the rest of the story unfolds. We are at verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanim, which is near Kadesh. And that verse at first glance, might seem like an insignificant detail just kind of thrown in the midst of a story because we're going to go from this command of Deborah, okay, go into battle, gather your men, and then in verse 12, we're going to pick things up with the battle, and right sandwiched in between there is this seemingly random detail about Heber, the Kenite, moving near to Kadesh. Just seems like an odd detail. Why is that there? We're going to see how God is at work, even in this seemingly meaningless detail. The Kenites, who were they? They were descendants of Moses' father-in-law. They were allies to Israel. Though they were not Jewish, many of them had embraced Yahweh as the one and true living God. In fact, we saw Othniel from chapters 1 and chapter 3. He was the first of the judges. He was a Kenite. Well, Heber, the Kenite, he breaks away from the rest of his clan. He moves close to Kedesh. And just for now, I want you to take that information, just put it in your back pocket, hold on to it. We're going to pull that out later. But for now, just just remember that that detail's there, that information's there, and we're going to see why that information is relevant in a little little while here. Let's read on in verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinanoam, has gone up to the Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed at Sisera and his chariots and all the army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harishoth Hegoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Initially, it might seem like this is the climax of the story right here. Like, this is it. Like, this is the moment. What? Wow, up. For this is the day in which God has given, the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Charge into battle. And when the victory is won, they rush into battle. The day is won. The chariots of iron mean nothing when the God of Israel fights for his people. Not a man was left. Verse 15 is the key to this chapter. The Lord routed Sisera. This wasn't barren. 
Who is it that routed Sisera? It is the Lord. The Lord routed Sisera before all the people of Israel. Deborah's song in chapter 5 also testifies that this victory, this victory belongs to the Lord. Not a man was left, a complete and total victory. And you might think, all right, good job, Barak. Way to go. Uh, we might expect this, there to be a little conclusion, right? Here then and here, oh yes, and the Lord delivered Israel and the land had rest for 40 years. And that'd be the end of the story. That's, that's what we might expect to see in this moment. But the story doesn't stop there. Deborah made a prophecy. She made a prediction. The glory won't go to Barak. Well, how is that prophecy to be fulfilled? Verse 17. Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Ah, is that a familiar name? We just saw that back in verse 11. For, uh, he, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenites. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and told him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her and into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And, she said, and he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly to him and drove the peg into, the, into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. Oof, yeah. The story takes a bit of a shocking turn. Sisera seeks refuge in the tent of his ally, Heber the Kenites. Jael seems to offer him, I mean, top-notch hospitality. All right, she calls him into the tent. Hey, it's okay, you can hide here, everything's fine. She covers him up. In the, in the ESV it says she covers him with a rug. The, the Hebrew word there is a little bit ambiguous. It might be better to translate it. She covers him with a covering. We don't know exactly what it is she's covering him with. Some kind of animal skin of some kind. It could have been a rug or a, you know, a, a blanket or something of that nature. Covers him up, keeps him hidden away. He asks for water. No, she, she doesn't bring him water. She brings him milk to drink. Top-notch hospitality. And then he gives her instructions. Hey, okay, if someone comes along and says, hey, is anyone here? What are you to say? No. Interesting note on the Hebrew of verse 20. He says, stand at the opening of a tent, and if anyone asks if someone is in the tent, you say, no. Well, literally in the Hebrew it could read, is there a man inside to which she is supposed to reply, there is no one. There is no one. It's just an ironic statement from Sisera. I like how Daniel Block put this in his commentary. He wrote, As he says this, he is passing judgment on himself. For in the end, this mighty general of Jabin Jabin turns out to be a nobody. And with his death, there will be no one in the tent. 
Look at verse 21. Jael, the wife of Heber, she took that tent peg, took a hammer in her hand. She went to him softly. She snuck up on him. Make sure she didn't wake him up as she's coming to approach him. And the language that's used where it says that she drives that temple into the ground and she drives it straight through his temple into the ground. This, these would have been large tent pegs, right? These, we think of tents and we think of like, okay, you know, we got our nice little dome tents and we stick them out. No, we're talking about a house, basically, right? Like this, their tent was large enough to, to house their family. And so we would have ropes and large stakes large hammers that would have been necessary to pound these into the ground. And in that culture, oftentimes it was the women that would have been pitching these tents and doing that task as the men were engaged in other activities. So Jael certainly would have been strong enough. She certainly would have been capable of this task of driving this tent peg through this man's head, clear through into the ground. But notice what it says in verse 21, it repeats who she was. Jael, and it says there, the wife of Heber. We already know that, right? It, 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 the text has already told us who she was back in verse 17. Well, why is this detail repeated? Again, Daniel Block writes, the insertion of the wife of Heber after Jael highlights the treachery of the woman's actions. Sisera may be a nobody, but she is not. She is the wife of the ally of Jabin. She's supposed to be providing asylum to Sisera. And yet she is the one who does him in. Almost makes you wonder what Heber thought when he came home from work that evening. But we have this meaningless detail that we thought was meaningless back in verse 11. Heber moved to Kadesh. And in that providence of God, God was working out these details behind the scenes so that Heber's Heber's move away from the Kenites into this region near Kadesh, God put jail in place for this moment. God had set the stage. God knew what was coming. And God arranged all the pieces to put into place. So the author draws our attention to that detail right as she sneaks up on Sisera and literally nails him to the floor. (laughs) It's a gruesome visual. Why are you laughing? (laughs) This is what has happened. Where we have this moment. And then suddenly, Barak re-enters the scene. He comes into this moment. He's chasing after Sisera. He's routed the army. Not a man is left. Now he comes after Sisera. He knows he's got to get this man. Right? This is, this is where the glory is. If I kill the enemy commander, not just the enemy commander, this is Sisera. This is the five-star general for Jabin. If I can get this guy, we've got it all. Jael calls him in. and The same language that, that when, when Jael called Sisera into the tent, now she calls Barak into the tent. The same language. And there is Sisera, dead. And suddenly, the story is done. No glory for Barak. 
Though he was the instrument of routing the Canaanite army, it was Jael's hand who crushed the skull of the general, bringing Deborah's prophecy to reality. Interesting characters in the story. Deborah, the judge. Barak, the one who actually went out into battle and routed the, the army. Jael, the, she's the one who actually ends up with the warrior's glory by killing Sisera. But who is the hero of this story? Who's the hero? It's God, right? I mean, this is what the text says. We, you know, so often as we, we're so prone to do this as we're reading, especially Old Testament narrative. We're reading these stories. We're reading about these individuals. They're doing great things or, or they're doing not so great things, but we want to look at them as either heroes or villains and idolize them or denigrate them, all the while ignoring what the text is seeking to drive us towards. Right? We have to recognize that there is much in Israel that ought not to be. Deborah is a prophetess. She is speaking from God. God is using her in a mighty way. But the people ought to have been going to the priest for judgments. Barak was a man of little faith. He refused to obey the word of the Lord unless the prophetess would come along with him as his lucky charm. Jael is certainly, in many ways, a woman that many admire, and rightfully so in many ways, but her actions are, are really one of treachery and betrayal. I mean, this would have been the height of betrayal to Jabin. And yet, the text really doesn't comment on a lot of that. Right? The text doesn't pay a lot of attention to a lot of those details. The, the author presents the details really matter-of-factly without much comment, but he gives us the history. This is what happens. But then he calls us to particular attention to the work of the Lord in the midst of it all. The main focus is on the mightiness of God. Look at verse 23. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until he destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So who subdued Jabin? The Lord. It was the Lord who subdued Jabin. It is God who did it. God used Jebra to rally the troops. Barak was God's tool to rout the Canaanites. God had Jael already in place by virtue of Heber moving near Kadesh, and Jael showed great clarity of thought and shrewdness to accomplish her assassination. But it is God who gives the victory. God is the one who has done this great work. And again, one last quote from Daniel Block. He writes, The author would be disappointed if our analysis ended with these intriguing characters of the dynamic and the dynamics of power and control between them. This is a story about God, who is the real hero, and His people Israel and their enemies, the Canaanites, represented by Jabin, the king. The conflict in the book of Judges is not between patriarchy and egalitarianism, between men and women, or even between the Israelite leaders and the rulers of the nations. The conflict is between the divine king and the kingdom of light on the one hand, and the forces of the kingdom of darkness 
on the other. And then I'll add this, my own comment to that. For far too much of the book of Judges, the people are on the wrong side. They are walking in the kingdom of darkness. But even as the Israelites wax worse and worse, their God rescues yet again. Next week, we're going to get to look at the story again because the author of the book of Judges included this, the song of Deborah and Barak that they sang. It's a victory song reflecting upon this battle and provides us a couple of different interesting details that emerge through the song. But it will further serve to highlight the greatness of our God in the midst of a depraved society. Because guess what? Things really aren't going to get better for the Israelites. (laughs) The cycles are going to repeat themselves again. We're going to come back around and revisiting the same themes. We'll have a different judge. We'll have different stories. We'll have different oppressors. But the themes are going to come back around again and again. And yet, God remains faithful. It's worth noting that it is from this passage that we have our first entry from the book of Judges in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. If you're familiar with the Hebrews 11, it's it's commonly called the Hall of Faith, where you got by faith Abraham, by faith so-and-so, and it's these lists of individuals who had faith in God, and God did mighty things in and through and for them. And we find Hebrews 11 verse 32 says this, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. Barak. Barak's in that list in Hebrews 11. The hall of faith. That's the same guy that wouldn't go into battle unless Deborah was with him. And yet, he's listed in the hall of faith. In many ways, you know, in a lot of ways, I really don't fully know what to make of that reality. I, I mean, I look at, G, at Judges chapter 4, and I don't see a man of great faith. Right? I see a man that, that doubted, a man that was unsure, a man that, that wanted some level of assurance that God was going to be with him beyond the fact that God had said it, and that should have been enough. But even though we wrestle with that, I'm, I want to tell you, I'm glad he's in Hebrews 11. Because if God can work through a man like Barak, and if God can identify him as a man of faith, then there's hope for people like me. That God can use individuals like me to accomplish his purposes as well. Because ultimately, all the men in Hebrews 11 and you know, the great heroes of the faith, so to speak. The stories, their stories aren't about them. They are about their great God who worked powerfully in and through them. And that is the point. God is accomplishing His purposes according to His perfect wisdom. So I close with Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and following. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His ways and His are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? 
Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you and I praise you for all the goodness that you have done. Thank you for your faithfulness that you have displayed time and time again. Lord, you have preserved for this, these incredible stories of how you have used individuals who are flawed, individuals who are broken, individuals that reject you in some areas of their life, and yet you have used them to accomplish your purposes. So I praise you and I thank you for that. I pray that we would fling ourselves wholly upon you and your mercy and trust in you and your faithfulness, for great is your faithfulness, O God. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing song today is Psalm 100.